0: One of the things that um, we're always aware of here at the Newhouse Center is the degree to which we belong to several communities of interest. And so our programming um, reflects the diversity and beauty and complication and complexity of you. Um, Today I have the great pleasure of introducing um, a writer who means uh, a lot to me um, for many reasons. One of them is that um, I had the great... Privilege of um, being in one of his workshops, and and when you're in a workshop with uh, Peter Carey, you learn a couple of things. One of them is that you learn how, um, when one becomes a distinguished writer, that one speaks as much with the voice as with the body. He's a man of great physical gesture. <laughs> He's also a man who understands that one of the most important things you can learn as a writer is how to line edit, how to take a pencil or a pen to yourself. But he also understands the importance of patience, of taking the time to reconstruct the world of nouns in which we live. Um, As a a writer with a distinguished career, there are few um, writers who uh, can compare to Peter 11 novels Um, many awards, including um, the Booker Prize uh, twice. Um, And as it stands, he's up for a third Booker Prize. And um, it's sort of like um, Brazil winning the World Cup all the time and then sort of (laughs) being cool about winning the next one, but we can understand why it would be a glorious thing. His most recent novel, and in um, my limited opinion, his best novel is um, Parrot and Olivier in America. What is it? Well, a good way of describing this book, um, the jacket copy, it's an improvisation on uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. I like to think of it as what happened when Musicians like um, Dizzy Gillespie started looking at the great American Charter of the Swing Era and decided that they would investigate it. They would have a conversation with it. Um, This is nothing less than um, the spirit of bebop translated into something highly literary. And so it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you a writer that, is from Australia, but really belongs to the world. He belongs as much to the world of Australia as he does to the world of America. He's lived here for 20 years. Um, But you can trace him all the way back to our beloved Faulkner. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in what has now become known as a wonderful Wellesley welcome. Please. Peter Carey. Thank you very
1: much. Well, I never knew how much I wanted to be Bebop. <laughs> but when I heard say that, I thought that was really good. Thank you very much. It was worth coming just to hear that. So it's downhill all the way from here. here. <laughs> this book has two voices. And uh, the first one is Olivier. Uh, who has something to, something to do with Tocqueville, but really you know, is, is, is my creature. Uh, and this voice I've, uh, I've given him is uh, the voice of a young French aristocrat. My publisher really thought that if there was any way I could have put the other character first, the English guy called Parrot, who was much more immediately likable... Uh, that would be a very good idea, and I do swear I tried, but it was impossible. I rather like Olivier, uh, even if he is irritable and a little bit snobbish. And people think that I've been mean to Tocqueville, who could not possibly have been snobbish. And yet I fear <laughs> they really didn't read all of Democracy in America, but that's just my opinion. Anyway. I'm rambling, I'm sorry. Let me just read a little bit from the beginning of the book. I do not doubt that something cruel and catastrophic had happened before I was even born. Yet the Comte and Comtesse, my parents, would not tell me what it was. As a result, my organ of curiosity was made irritable, and I grew into the most restless, unhealthy creature imaginable. Slight, pale always climbing, prying into every drain and attic of the Chateau de Bafleur. But consider this, given the ferocity of my investigations. Is it not half-queer I did not come across my uncle's salary fair? <laughs> salary fair. Perhaps the salary fair is common knowledge in your own family. In mine it was, like everything, a mystery this clumsy wooden bicycle, constructed by my uncle, Astolf de Baffleur, was only brought to light when a pair of itinerant slaters glimpsed it strapped to the rafters, this wooden bicycle. Why it should be strapped, I do not know, nor can I imagine why my uncle, for I assume it was he, had used two leather dog collars to do the job. It is, alas, my nature to imagine a tragedy that loyal pets have died, for instance. But perhaps the dog collars were simply what my uncle had at hand. In any case, it was typical of the riddles trapped inside the Chateau de Bafleur. At least it was not me who found it, and it makes my pulse race even now to imagine how my mother might have reacted if I had. Her upsets were never predictable, and as for her maternal passions, these were not conventionally expressed, although I relished those occasions by no means infrequent when she feared that I would die. (laughs) It is recorded that in the year of 1809, she called the doctor on 53 occasions. Twenty years later, she would still be taking the most outlandish steps to save my life. Well, my childhood was neither blessed nor tainted by the salary fare and I would not have mentioned it at all, except here it is before is now. Picture. <laughs> Typically, the Austrian draftsman fails to suggest the three dimensions, but never mind. Could there be a vehicle more appropriate for the task I have so recklessly set myself, one that you, by the by, have supported by taking this volume in your hands? That is, you have agreed to be transported to my childhood, where it will be proven, or if not proven, then strongly suggested, that the very shape of my head, my particular phrenology, the volume of my lungs, was determined by unknown pressures brought to bear in the years before my birth. So let us believe that a grotesque and antique bicycle has been made available to us, its wooden frame in the form of a horse. And, of course, if we are to approach my home this way, we must be prepared to push my uncle's hobby across fallen branches through the spinneys. It's almost useless in the rough ground of the woods where I and the Abbe de la Londe, my beloved bébé, shot so many hundreds of larks and, and sparrows that I bruised my little shoulder blue. Careful, Olivier dear, do be careful, We can ignore nose bleeding for the time being. Although, to be realistic, the blood can be anticipated soon enough. Spectacular spurts, splendid gushes, my body always being too thin-walled a container for the passions coursing through its veins. But as we are making up our adventure, let us assume there is no blood, no compresses, no leeches, no wild gallops to drag the doctor from his breakfast. And so we readers can leave the silky, treacherous Seine and cross the rough woodlands and enter the path between the linden trees and I, Olivia, Jean, Baptiste, de clairel de Baffleur, de Gamont, a noble of myopia, I'm free to speed like mercury while pointing out the blurry vegetable garden on the left, the smudgy watercolour of orchard on the right, across the the village road where I can go go skidding, sailing, blind as a bat through the open gates of the Chateau de Bafleur. Hello, Jacques. Hello, Gustave. Odile. I am home. So um, that's the beginning of... Olivier, and um, there's not really. Let I me. Mean, I'll tell you a little about uh, uh, Olivier. Olivier, Olivier. Olivier lives in a house in a, in a chateau, in fact, of some <laughs> dimensions. Um, his parents are both survivors of the Terror of the French Revolution, and uh, his they were about to go to the guillotine uh, when. Um, God, I've forgotten his name. Robespierre (laughs) Robespierre, uh, got bumped and they they weren't killed. But in the meantime, the father's hair had turned white overnight and the mother was uh, damaged by this trauma to such a degree that she's sort of been ill and neurotic and odd all her life. And so this child uh, lives in a house where there's this great secret and he he doesn't know there's been a terror and he, doesn't, he just knows that there's something that's happened. And so what happens in the beginning of the book is that he, in he, he's snooping around, uh, discovers that there has been a revolution, that there is such a thing as a guillotine, and that his parents and grandpa- his, his, his grandfather is dead, and many of their relations are dead, and that they sat in the... In the chateau and allowed themselves to be taken away by people who were not aristocrats and didn 't fight with them and just went away so that 's and, and, and to me and to me thinking about the parallel universe that I inhabit when i 'm writing this book, which is what not one that 's necessarily not necessary for the reader uh, but that was also true of tocqueville 's life and uh, in the histories that, that I read at the time. I thought this was a hugely significant fact for somebody uh, engaging with democracy and also having a considerable, considerable trepidation about democracy. I mean, you don't need the terror to have that, but he did, and I thought that that was a significant thing. And uh, so I got an A plus. <laughs> <laughs> let me let, let let me. Parrot Parrot himself is. is uh, a little older. He's going, to, he's going to end up being Olivier's servant. And it's never, ever occurred to him that he might be a servant to anybody. He's not that sort of person. But by the time he arrives in America at the age of probably about 50, he, he realizes that in the new democracy he is, he is that useless thing. Uh, and that he is a servant. He will not be, finally, uh, my father was someone who always used to read the end of the book first to see that every, everybody was okay, so i 'm just telling you <laughs> <laughs> he was not a postmodernist either I can tell <laughs>
0: um,
1: So this is parrot he, sh- he should you know this way where writers you know destroy what they 've done because they read it aloud and they can 't do the voices you know, so parrot really should be read I have heard it read with a, a west country accent and Sounds really nice. I can't do that. I've got to I give it a sort of a, a bit of an Australian term, which is <laughs> oh, you might think, Who is this? And I might say, This is God, and what are you to do? Or I might say, a bird. Or I could tell you, Madam, Monsieur, sir, madam, how this name was given to me. I was christened parrot because my hair was coloured carrot, because my skin was burned to feathers, and when I tumbled down into the whaler, the coxswain yelled, Here's a parrot, cab- captain. So, it seems you have your answer, but you don't. I had been named parrot as a child when my skin was still pale and tender as a maiden's breast, and I was still parrot in 1793 when Olivier de barbar Garmont was not even a twinkle in his father's eye. To belabor the point, sir, I was and am distinctly senior to that unborn child. In 1793, the French were chopping off each other's heads and I was already 12 years of age and my endodermis naturalist had become scrubbed and hardened by the winds and mists of Dartmoor from whose vastness my dar and I never strayed too far. I I had tramped behind my darling daddy down muddy lanes and I was still called Parrot when he, Jack Larratt, carried me on his shoulder through the north gate at Totnes. My daddy loved his Parrot. He would sit me on the bar of the Kingsgate Inn to let the punters hear what wonders came from my amazing mouth. Man is born free and is everywhere in chains. If that's not worth sixpence, what is? My daddy was a journeyman printer, a lanky man with big knees and nubbly knuckled hands with which he would rough up his red hair when looking for first principles. Inside this bird's nest, it was a surprise to find his small white noggin, the precious engine of his bright grey eyes. And then there's a long, tedious quote from Rousseau, which works here, but my, <laughs> my, my wife told me not to read it in public, so I said, I, I, I'm not going to. It's about the relationship between children and their parents and the children growing up. That's enough. My daddy and I were two peas in a pod. The acquisition of knowledge was our occupation, but of my ma I knew nothing except that she had a tiny waist which would fit inside her husband's hands. I missed her all my life. I knew Adam Smith before I reached fractions. Then I was put to Latin, which my father liked no more than I did, and this caused us considerable upset, both with ourselves and with each other. It was due to Latin that my father got in a state and clipped my lug hole and I grabbed a half-burned bit of kindling and set the drawing on the floor. I had never seen a drawing in my life. And when I saw what I was doing, dear God, I thought I had invented it. And what rage, what fury, what a delicious humming wickedness I felt all over the floor and who would clean it? I'd seen my daddy's hand reach for his belt buckle and I was ipso facto ready for the slap. Yet at this moment, I I entered a foreign jungle of the soul. I drew a man with a dirty long nose, a leaping trout, a donkey falling upside down. And my daddy's belt stayed in his trousers. He stared at me. His hair stood up like taffy. He cocked his head. I permitted him to take my charcoal stick and kiss me on the head. Not a crossword or a kind one. He led the parrot downstairs where he ordered the landlord pour me a ginger beer. Then he sat and watched me drink and what was he pondering, do you reckon? The benefits of having an engraver in the family. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This this then uh, leads to uh, I don't know really, because I haven't read from this for a bit. I'm as surprised as you are. So what it, what, it, what it leads to is, is a, a job in a printery uh, which is engaged in <coughs>
0: yeah.
1: copyright theft, a subject many of us are familiar with these days, um, of books printed in London and being put on the road at a much cheaper price, much more quickly, dot .com. And, um, <laughs> and also it appears, and we find out uh, slowly, uh, quite a bit of... Um, Actual forgery of currency, currency of different types, and the notion of engraving and engravers sort of does sort of relate to this, and um, a- a- and to Parrot's great ambition to be an artist, which he re- he will reach the age of fifty, realizing that he hasn't fulfilled, um, and it might be too late, but it ends o- it en- it ends okay, um, sir. So. The reason for the American trip is that uh, there 's the July Revolution in France, and there 's a fear that the, the Olivier may be politically out of favor, and if things get worse, perhaps his life might be at risk. He comes from a traumatized family they sort of bu- he can 't run away because that would be sort of make him very suspect. So he, he gets a similar job to the one that Tocqueville and, and, and <coughs> had, which is to go and investigate the prisons of the United States. Tocqueville, of course, went with his fellow aristocrat, Beaumont. And they, and they argued in a very educated and interesting way about democracy in America for years and wrote three books. Um, it's going to be Olivier's lot. He was going to go with someone a little bit like Beaumont, but the, the character called Blackville, his, his old friend was shot in a duel as they're about to get on the boat and everyone's determined still to get Olivier out of the country and Parrot, meanwhile has been sent to spy on him by his mother anyway and be his secretary and organiser and um so let me read a, a, a little bit about the a little bit from the journey uh, to the United States to New York in fact and um He's very disrespectful. I mean, uh, apparently, he, call, he calls Olivier uh, Lord Migraine <laughs> and uh, Lord Pintledy Pantledy and Lord Snobs Duck, all sorts of you know, insulting things. He, he despises him. And Well, never mind. Uh, 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 Migraine, Migraine, so this is on the ship. Migraine suddenly shouted he would write an entire book about Americans he loudly declared them the most interesting creatures he'd ever seen. It was difficult to guess what he really thought, but he began to interview them one by one as if it was an agricultural occasion and he must check their weight and teeth and breeding and know who the sire and who the dame, and all this he recorded in his notebook. And it was my great privilege, when he was done, to transcribe his awful scrawl into the journal and in all cases have a carbon copy which would be sent as safety back to France." I doubt his prying mother ever found anything to make her fear for her baby's safety. Indeed, I wondered if she had the fortitude to read the tedious stuff. Was she even curious enough, I wonder, to endure that very long conversation, some of which later found its way into the famous book, wherein the pious manufacturer of nails asks the French commissioner to imagine France in its natural state, that is, one in which any piece of land is available to whoever is man enough to work it. So, so they arrive at, they're arriving in this is a short they've having arrived in New York with the Americans. And you know, by the time by the time they, they arrive there, um, Olivier's in such a rage that uh, he's gonna have Parrot arrested. And Parrot's in such a rage that he imagines filling Olivier's mouth with dirt and various other sort of you know, not very Nice thing. So, um, so the thing is, you see, they, 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 they get down together, the, the banker who he's met on the boat and, and Olivier, and they go through the documents because he, no, he finds out he has no money because he's not the sort of chap that would normally have to worry about that. Someone would look at after, after it for him. And when they go through the, through the bank documents, what they discover is that, in fact, they don't know, but Parrot has prepared the documents and he is, in fact, co signatory. And so the beginning of this strange relationship, which will end up in, in friendship, really begins with necessity. Uh, so they've, they've got to find Pirate rather than put him in jail. And, uh, Come, Olivier, said Mr. Peake, who's a ba- the banker. We will find your man. We will make peace with him. I found the deck crowded with a musty, malodorous humanity that had hitherto been kept below. Across their shoulders, behind their sad, battered, stacked portmanteaus, I made out New York. A great deal of bright, yellow, sappy wood, a vast pile of bricks, a provincial town in the process of being built or broken. I put my goods into the care of a large black man. If he was a slave or a porter, I did not know. Only that he put my trunk upon his shoulder and tucked my valise under his arm and with no regard for the delicacy of the first-class passengers rammed his way down the gangplank, beckoning me to follow him. When I had, by necessity, mimicked the rude jostling, I arrived in a limbo, not quite ashore nor quite unplanned. A long, open-sided warehouse built atop a jetty. I looked for Peek. He was nowhere to be seen. Ahead of me, I could see the servant's frightful hair. But... Now the black giant had brought me to an official and delivered my baggage to his table. Having opened each item to facilitate inspection, the porter demanded money. I explained to him that I had only a letter of credit on the Bank of New York, although I was clearing, it was clearly a ridiculous thing for me to do, and I could imagine my mother rolling her eyes upward to see such a behaviour from a de Gamont. I showed the document to the damn porter, whose huge black face contorted itself in, to the most frightening effect. I asked the official to intercede, saying that if he would provide the porter's name, I would return tomorrow and give him coin. Anxious that my co-signatory was escaping me, I'm afraid that I rather thrust my letter at the official's face, thus causing unintended offence. He and the slave were then joined in a war against me, and I was subjected to all the tyranny that a petty official can bring against his social betters. As a consequence, I was detained almost an hour, while my possessions were carefully inspected one by one. By the time the valise had been disemboweled and I had been interrogated about the exact nature of my nobility, how I stood in relation to the Republic, and if I were for General Lafayette or against him, all of which I answered diplomatically, even though such questions were no, had, had no more standing than a generally agreed desire that the nobles were to be shown their place. And by then I lost sight of both my ally and my servant. When my ordeal was over, I still had no clinking stuff. (laughs) I was therefore compelled to carry my own luggage to a place where I saw Mr. Peake awaiting me. My progress was maliciously observed by the dull and hostile eyes of a dozen porters, not one of whom could be persuaded to rise from their haunches, not even by Peake himself, who chastised chastised the ruffians for their lack of hospitality to a friend of the revolution, (laughs) which, of course, he was not. And I think I'll just read you maybe one... One little bit. This, uh, so this is this is really Parrot's first and, and Olivier's first night in New York. And um, at this particular moment, Parrot has gone out for a walk. His wife is not well. His de facto wife, his common law wife, his lover is not well. Um, we 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 do know that. Um, that Olivier is, is out, and uh, we, we know some, something about him that you will find out at the very end of this section. Uh, certainly, Parrot doesn't know this simple <coughs> thing. I entered into the white gas stream of Broadway, but could not see the, single, the sil- silver North River and the dark East River flowing like mercury in the night. So how could I guess what was occurring? that very hour in the unlit streets around the Bowery where there was a murky, smoking, red-flecked flow of life. Not ants, but human beings, a living mass of men roaring south toward me. I later learned that the city fathers had locked up about 300 pigs inside the Canal Street Pound. I'd seen the notice on the street, but what were pigs to me? But it seems the city would no longer tolerate the swine whom their improvident owners let wander the streets where they relieved themselves in public and fornicated without shame. But the people's pigs had been stolen from them. And as a result, there was extreme social agitation around the pound. All the angry owners of the pigs, some armed with hammers, others with crowbars, others with no more than a skinful of John Barleycorn, had been drawn towards this enclosure like filings to a magnet. So as I innocently wondered, wondered about the price of a dozen New York oysters, some hundred pigs were stampeding into genteel Hudson Square and a greater number of men were stumbling, falling, howling. One wished only to retrieve his own pig and lead him home, another to steal a new pig, but most had no other ambition than to share the joy of the chase. I heard them coming, I suppose, but I'd lived so many years in Paris I thought the roar of voices was nothing but a boxing match. On the corner of Broadway, along Chambers Street, I saw a strange sight. A French noble, no prizes here, a French noble whose cloak did not obscure, the gold embroidery shining bright as Jesus in the gas. He carried a silver-capped stick in his inky right hand and an untidy pile of papers beneath his left arm. I'd forgotten that Lord Migraine was short-sighted, so when he did not see me, I assumed he meant to cut me. Why not? It must be clear by now I had no intention of being his second signatory. But then I saw he was not cutting me at all. He offered me his hand. Which way do you walk? he asked. As he was once again attempting English, I was slow to understand him. I trust Mrs Larratt is recovered, he said. In the course of this very short but complicated conversation, we had walked a block, and so were on the corner of Murray Street when the swine and their fellows arrived on top of us. Murray was dark, but Broadway was lit from the Bowery up to the Delphi Theatre. So although I pulled him into a doorway, the bright light caught his fancy coat, and that was jewel enough to halt the whole stampede. And that part of it composed of a hulking Irishman and his Carib friend, who immediately demanded that the aristocrat tell them who he was and where he came from. I am Mr Olivier de Garmont, he said, in a haughty style not well matched to his situation. <laughs> I am a friend of General Lafayette. A lie. (laughs) (laughs) To which the Carib wished to know how it was his head had not been taken off his shoulders many years before. The little fellow stepped full into the light, and with that largeness of gesture which marks French theatrical speech, he declared himself a student of democracy. Alas, his listeners knew nothing of the French or the theatre. They were drunk and probably affronted that he didn't have the grace to act afraid. You little curd, cried the Irishman, and wrapped his arm around the slender neck and dragged him into Murray Street, wrenching him so violently that papers and stick went flying in the dark. I searched for the stick and found it by its silver knob. By this time, the two large men were sending him back and forth between them like a shuttlecock. And they are also, and I'm sparing you this too, they're singing the Marseillaise in a rough sort of way. I've often been asked not to sing, so... (laughs) Blige. Migraine seemed not to understand the deadly intention of the song. Silver no his lordship's stick, was too light to be a useful weapon. Chance brought me a decent length of lumber, four inches by two inches, I would say. This instrument I brought down upon the catarab's arm. Lord, what a crack. Urgently, the fellow held his limb against his chest, bestowing on me in complete silence a look of inexorable outrage. Kindly bash the bugger, Jim, said he, or, or words to that effect. I was a fair height, and I was strong enough, but the Irishman was taller and heavier. I later read that he was a ferry driver, famous for his foul mouth and violent possession of disputed wharves. Soon he would be a millionaire. Now he was about to murder me. The Irishman had raised his ringed fist. Lord Jesus interrupted the carib and sat down suddenly. Alley, cried Lord Migraine. I did not have to turn my head to see the Frenchman's arm. It was extended parallel to the earth, and at one end there was a pistol with an eight-inch barrel. No, I said, for I didn't see how he had time to prime it. La Fuzong, he said. The Irishman began to laugh, and that was his miscalculation, for it produced a flash of flame, and he was violently pushed backward on his heels. You, he said, clutching at himself. It was clear he had taken a ball in the shoulder. Now, said my surprising ally to our two assailants, Martinong, Rong Tre, It was clear I had much to learn about Olivier de Gaumont. Isn't that? Good. And more. I got a whole book full of stuff here. Uh,
0: You're 67 now. But you still. Oh, I, I didn't come no. all this way for this. No, no but, but, <laughs> yes, I'm sixty-seven. Yes. But you still delight in reading, in, um. In story, that's a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah, I think. I think. Well, in the in the end, you have you. You don't think of reading out loud. Well, I don't when mm-hmm, I'm writing. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I have to find out how to do it, and um, so then I discover. that's what's what's hidden, the rhythms and things that I've been aware of in another way Mm -hmm. are then a pleasure to, you know, investigate and and to use and and also at times when I'm doing a lot of readings, which I'm not at the moment, it means that I can be be alive to them and find the rhythms in different ways in different readings and so that's nice to do. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I'm... The thing I think I'm always... The thing that gets me into it in the first place and gets me into these strange situations is almost always an idea, you know, so it's the... it's so far beyond my life. Mm-hmm. I grew up in this little town in Bacchus Marsh, called Bacchus Marsh in Australia, about 4,000 people, predominantly lower class, working class, lower middle class, uh, not a lot of books. Uh, and it's, it's, it isn't the life that prepares you to write about the French aristocracy, is what I'm trying to say. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so that so this idea of doing this stretches me so far and, and, and beyond anything I know and anything I am and that's the pleasure, because that's the risk, and that's the joy and, uh, of thinking, Holy god. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, but I think, in a sense, it does prepare you. Because I think coming from a place where people actually describe themselves in terms of their class actually prepares one to think about class in ways that are yeah. not easy for American writers yeah. because of um, America's mythology, yeah. right? You're right. that it's been successful at eradicating difference yeah. in class. In fact, I think, um, you know, Bacchus Marsh prepared you to write about that. Well, I
1: left something today. out in my yeah. story, you see, because I didn't want to go on and on. <laughs> but, you see, the weird thing was that that is where I grew up, and, and uh, we, we had Reader's Digest condensed books. It yes. was, was as good as we went there. Uh, and we thought we were sort of posh in the town, you right, know, like right, the right. doctor and the pharmacist. Yes. Uh, and uh, But my parents then sent me away to boarding school. And where they sent me was a place called Geelong Grammar, which was where Prince Charles, when he went to be a good chap in Australia, taught there. So it's like an Australian... It's like a, sort of an Australian Eton. And indeed, a lot of the staff and headmasters had, had, had been at English public schools, mm-hmm. private schools, public schools, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I really... And I... And I did think quite recently, well, you know, that's the thing that I knew there. Right. And I really right. learned, even though I didn't know I was learning it at first, because right. I didn't know where I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people spoke differently. Not many people spoke like they came from the ha- home counties of, of England. Right. Uh, so I learned that sort of... So you're quite correct. You know, that, there, yeah, that class awareness is, is profoundly deep. And, and
0: uh, You know, I recently tried to write um, a historical novel. It didn't work. Um, I tried to write a novel set in the future. didn't work. But what did work for me was that I understood how similar both processes were. In that, um, to write about either the future or the past um, requires one to really have a grasp of the forces at work there. If you're writing about the future, um, it still is a world in which there are forces operating. Mm. There are um, natural forces, there are social forces, Mm. all of that. In looking... Uh, As you were writing um, this novel, what were some of the salient forces that you recognized were operative um, in the world of the story? And um, how did you as a writer sort of engage these forces in terms of um, fighting against them and also to working with them to create the narrative?
1: I mean, what what you've just said is, 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 I think is amazingly smart because that's the sort of thing I say all the time. (laughs) <laughs> but but being, being put on the other side of this and, and being asked to give examples of exactly what those forces might be, I, I, I'm stumbling around a little bit, but let me. Let, let me um, because that, that, is, that is exactly what one does. You know, you, you want to do this, there are all these forces indicating people do this, and there are spatial forces and physical forces that in the end make your story. But uh, what were the examples? This is to dodge it. A little bit. And you can come back and prod me on this, I'm sure you will. Um, But one of the things, it's more anecdotal than really to address this issue, but one of the things I've always thought about Australia and the United States, for all of their superficial similarities, is their enormous differences. And if you want to talk about forces in a society, then you know, in, in a, in a, the, the, the thing that makes Australia the European part of Australia, not the not the very stable fifty thousand year old part that was doing just fine, uh, but the one that starts with the with the with with penal colony, is that you have a group of people who don't want to go there, including the soldiers, who, who, who and not the fancy soldiers, they're the soldiers who are at the bottom of the packing order, really, because who's who wants to be sent there. And it begins with the enormous trauma of their isolation. They nearly die of starvation, while the indigenous people seem to be eating reasonably well because the things that they bring to plant die. And by the time the sh- the, 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 they're relieved uh, by the, the sails out at sea, which have crossed the, across the world, uh, the, the soldiers and the prisoners are ragged, their shoes are worn out, and they're worried that they're going to die. And from that, from that, that very beginning, that shame, convict stain, which was a term used in Australia, you know, for a long, long time, um, and 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 the and the fact that most of the country is desert and very hard—it's a place where you get lost and die. They're great heroes always get lost and die. It seems. Burke and Wills are famous. Burke Burke was famous for getting lost before he even led the expedition. Um, so. It's a harsh, unpromising, punitive sort of place that we've learned to love in a weird way. Now, the United States doesn't begin like that at all. I mean, it begins in many, many ways, but if you, if you, if you could take one aspect of it and you'd think, well, if you think of the, of the, of the pilgrims <laughs> and the convicts and start to look at that as a sort of a, a, a different force within this society that still, is still operating... Today, and you could think of the of the, the thing Tocqueville continually, talks about is, is, is the Americans' obsession with wealth and getting it, and, and their restlessness and uh, never being able to stay still, always moving on to the next next thing, being worried that somebody else is making more money and doing that. So the 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 general there's a general narrative of of, of material success and wealth, which is so these are the forces that make this. So I'd always thought that Australia was no use at all in understanding America. But the interesting thing that I found, that I suddenly understood about the New York of this period and about Tocqueville, or in my case, Olivier, is the one thing that I knew really, really well from Australia is that we were always very vulnerable to visiting aristocrats. (laughs) Really. And we would want them... What do you think of us, you know, or, and, and later they could be just grosses, it wouldn't matter, they're just English, <laughs> but, but and, and so we're vulnerable to their opinion and we hate the, hate being disapproved of, we bragged and still do unmercifully, we took to people saying our, our country's better to somebody, we've never been to their country right. but, you know, this is the best country in the world mate, right. you know, why and I found a lot of this in New York in the 1830s and, and the Americans on the boat right. are like this right. And I was so happy because there was, you know, there was something that I could take from my own. I could inhabit that particular aspect of, right. of, of, of early America and enjoy it. And mm-hmm. um, so it does come out. I'd, I did actually get in the thing about forces and so on, did
0: Was it easier to write about... Um, is it easier to write about America in the past than it is to write about contemporary America? Yeah. It is. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, well you see, that, I, I think... If we're going to think about America in the past, uh, well, none of you have been there. (laughs) And I haven't either. And there's a lot of things you know if you were native born about being American. But if you're an immigrant, there's a lot of things you know about being American, too. And you've
0: been here 20 years.
1: And I've been here 20 years. So I think I can inhabit the American past. Right. See, what you said about the future and the past I completely agree with. And in fact, Jonathan Miller, uh, the, you know, the amazingly clever, stammering English director, um, once said about Oscar and Lucinda, I, I, "I get it." He said, it's, it's, "It's like a science fiction of the past." <laughs> and I thought, I still don't quite understand it, but, but I do understand it. And, and in a way, it's that you, that you have the power when you go back into the past. You have the power to invent incredibly, but you must acknowledge what is thought to be so. So yes, as a storyteller, you don't want to be rejected by your readers. Right. So you do a lot of work to right. make sure that everything, mm-hmm. you're not contradicting what's generally known.
0: Mm-hmm. But then really it's all yours, baby. Right, <laughs> right. <So laughs> the, in, um, in managing these two voices, right, these two invented voices of um, uh, Pat and Olivier, did you, what were some of uh, the tricks um, that you created for yourself in order to stay in key um, for each voice. Um, and to what degree do you think you've been success- successful?
1: Hmm. Well, in reading it aloud, not at all. <laughs> I, found myself, I found myself drifting from one sort of thing into another. I, my, my apologies. Um, so, something similar does happen in writing, I think, you know, when you're in the process of writing. Yeah, it's really hard to maintain a voice, you know, over... Two years in many drafts and many things, facing all the difficulties. So you tend to slip, but then you go back at the end and you notice where you slipped and you mm-hmm. think, well, um, I'll fix this, you know. Mm-hmm. And for, I think that the, the thing about voice is, which, what's called voice, is really much more to do with the intentions and desires and limitations of the character. So what we start to think of as voice, you know, like particular words and word usages and sentences. Right. I think I get a lot more credit than right. I, I deserve, possibly. No, 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 and I think it's coming out. I think it's probably coming out of other forces in in, in the right. work.
0: So saying, like, understanding the forces leads you to voice.
1: Well, both of these, you know, for all the, the ridiculous, you know, self-pitying, whining right. that is common in a writer's household. Um, and, and and doubt, um, the, with the thing with both of these voices, they're just as I sat down to write them. The first day I sat down to write them, those be, the beginnings. So I didn't. So 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 the, there's say, a vote for intuition. I guess.
0: Right. Right. But, but 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 intuition is not something I think to be discounted. If you take the ride on uh, the wave of of intuition, right. So intuition is something which, uh, in a sense, is a kind of wiring. It's also related to experience, but as As we go back to this particular work Mm. and the way in which um, you're writing about historical figures but you're not, Mm. I could see how intuition could serve you extremely well there. But it's more than intuition, I think, that you would need. You need a certain kind of bravery or a certain kind of silliness, really, to take on
1: Mm, this huge... I've always thought of bravery as silliness. I agree with you. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> but to
0: sort of, so we have intuition at work, right? As you're taking this on, right? Yeah. Um, we have bravery, um, which is another word for silliness at work as you're taking this on. But as you're doing it, right? What's what's working against you? In other words, what were some of the most difficult parts when, well, of well, this book? Well, I don't know.
1: Well, I'll, right? Okay, we'll talk, we'll talk to that.
0: Um, the, the,
1: there's a period of history uh, where. You have a long section with with, with Olivia. Then you have Parrot, right. and by the time Parrot, uh, by the time we come back to Olivia, years have passed mm-hmm. uh, from the from the uh, Napoleon coming back, right. and and we're going to arrive just before the July Revolution. So there's a whole period of time, uh, which is what about years, 25 years, mm-hmm. twenty something years, twenty five years, or twenties or twenty? I can't remember. Um, so you've got to you 've got to tell the story of the history, but that 's not what you 're really writing about you 've got to allow for what happened and so everybody knows you're not, but you 're really writing a novel about characters mm-hmm. and so in that period, to get back to this when Olivier came, comes back I, I, I chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped and it was very very that was, that was a particularly difficult thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that was the the, the the thing about intuition and Bravery or whatever, I do like to take risk, and I think risk. I'm sort of rather addicted to it after all of these years. That <laughs> to set up something that's sort of be- beyond what I have a right to know or to do is very. I sort of like it, you yeah. know. And um, and 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 to be at once you know, an American citizen living here, but also to be a foreigner and also right. to to feel that sort of thing and to say, OK, you guys, you think you know, you th- you think you know who Tocqueville is? You think it's this? <laughs> well, it's this. <laughs> and, and, and to do it in such a way that you're sort of not completely bulletproof but just about bullet, bulletproof and, right. then, and then you take some big risks with it. Yeah. It's very pleasurable. It sort of just appeals to a part of, part of my personality. And in the process of doing that, one reads... There's a whole lot that's coming from just just sort of sucking things dry from reading and reading and reading and reading and making notes about things that you can use. Mm -hmm. And then there are things that you really... When when I start off a book anyway, I set a lot of characters there. Not quite sure if I'm ever going to really use them. Mm -hmm. So if you think of them as pieces on a board and they're available to do something with. Mm. So there's a character, Watkins, who starts off as an engraver in England and ends up as being a very famous person in America at the beginning I didn't really know I was going to do that with him but right. he was available for something and they are like think, and sometimes those, those characters just sort of drop away mm-hmm. and often you find yourself so, so they're sitting there mm-hmm. and you've got a story that you've sort of roughly roughly, broadly mm-hmm. mapped out but not so well that you don't finally get them to America which is what you worry about and think, right. well, what am I going to do with them now so you have that sort of thing and then you have, I think, uh, the, the intuition thing, the thing where you are going kind to of make this thing up. It's like, like the sort of mud and sand at the bottom of a, the river of your life, you know, and mm. you just pick it up and you use it, and you don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. But it's guided always by something sort of quite rational and determined. And you do have a compass, and you do know where you want to go, but mm. you... Was that, was that
0: clear? Yeah, yeah, because it's, that's exactly how Lester Young would talk about Playing music.
1: We're back there, I love it. The, we're, we're I love there. it, I no, love we're it. We're back there.
0: Um, it, 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 seems to though, it seems to me, though, that um, although there's this sort of bravery of um, taking on this big American thing, there's always a kind of safety in taking a character to Australia, taking a character to on, Australia. No, it's yeah. not safety. No. That's ridiculous. I mean, I, no, no it, that's not safety at all. No, please, please say ridiculous again so my students can hear. Ridiculous. <laughs> Go. <laughs> well, I didn't need to do it, really.
1: Uh, uh-huh. I just wanted to do it, uh-huh. so there's no safety in it.
0: And
1: uh-huh. in fact, if you have to, if you look at what has to happen architecturally for me to, to do that, uh-huh. um, I'm very, very pleased I, I did it well, because I, I, I found, I, I discovered too. some big things that I hadn't even known. You know, I mean, there's right. things in there that I was, that because I, I, but I was determined mm-hmm. from very early when, you know, when you're starting a book, you sometimes decide this is going to happen. I decided right. the reason he starts in Dartmoor uh-huh. is because I wanted. I knew that they were going to get on a convict ship by mistake and running away. Right. And that the convict ships came out of Plymouth. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted some countryside near Plymouth, which mm-hmm. said so that's what sense. Mm-hmm. So I have to set this in Dartmoor. Mm-hmm. And so that was there very, very, very early in the piece. And right. I had all these sort of ideas, many of which were sort of impossible historically and in many other ways so that had to be abandoned. But right. uh, yeah.
0: mm. I wanted to a couple of more questions I want to ask. You. Easy, huh? Yeah. On, on the question of intuition again, how does um, your understanding and belief in intuition? Um, how do you translate that um, to students? Um, who? How do you? How does one teach in, intuition?
1: Oh, I don't think you can teach intuition. Right. I, 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 th- I, I think you can encourage. Encourage. Uh, that there's a part when you're writing at first, and even now, I sort of in my first draft, I. I I'm happy with the number of lines I've written. Mm-hmm. you know, And so I'm reluctant really to cut it because I can see I've written that many lines for the day. Mm-hmm. And, and of course what, I should, what one should be doing is just throwing this stuff away. And later you just go bang, bang, bang and you get rid of it. But at the right. time there's something very retentive about what you're doing. And right. there's a thing I think that students do between their first and second and third drafts is that they want to keep what they've written and not lose it and not throw it away. And so one of the things which is to do with Intuition a bit, but it's to do with generally just being a sort of mad recklessness, mm-hmm. or or it's courage. It's knowing if you've written that, you'll write it again. So don't hang, don't hang on to what you've got. Be prepared to follow the consequences of the idea. And so, this I think, if you if you say you encourage a student who, who's written a story, and they or you or everybody collectively recognises in the centre of this a. a, a an idea? And you say to the student, that was what you were interested in, wasn't it? And they say, yes, it's one of the great moments in teaching. You say, mm-hmm. so This is what you were interested in, wasn't it? Yes, how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> um, and, and then you say, well, that, that's really, that is a really lovely idea. And how, and how, and what other ways might you think about developing that idea and taking it outside of, of your life, or what you know? What are, what are the logical consequences mm-hmm. of the idea? And, uh, might you do this and this? And by following the consequences of ideas, you will be led, I think, or it's my experience anyway, outside of your own little world mm-hmm. and outside of your anything you know. And you find yourself in the process then of... I mean, I often think that writing, is, it's really like sort of building a staircase for yourself. And at the beginning, you, you can only get up one step. That's mm-hmm. all you can imagine. And then you build another step and another step and another step. And the next thing, you're up at the ceiling and everyone's thinking, how do you get up there? Yes. And, and, that's, and that's, well, anyway, I think it's the intuition. If one follows the logic of the idea, one yeah. is forced into using intuition.
0: Mm-hmm. If you'd gone through an MFA program, do you think you'd be the writer you are today? If at 22, you'd instead of writing um, four novels that didn't get published in their time, um, um, but sort of going in for two years and...
1: I don't know. I don't know what power MFA progr- I mean, I used to say that the, the major responsibility in an MFA program is not to destroy anybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the most important thing you can do, and if you can just do that, right. then you're doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually was twice shortlisted for the Stanford Writing Scholarship, which would have sent me to Stanford, mm-hmm. which I think would have probably destroyed me, mm. thinking about it. I think, I think it was pretty tough there.
0: If you've gone yeah. one to Wellesley, though, you should have taken it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> anyway, they, they, they never gave it to me anyway, so I, I, uh, I, didn't, have the, I didn't have the option. Yeah. So I don't know its answer, of course.
0: Mm. Good. Let's thank Peter Carey for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you.